0: Hello, listener. We're friends now. If you like what you hear today, leave me a review. If you really like it, there will be a link to my PayPal in the description. Okay, let's go. Yeah, no one cares about intros. Let's just have fun. Head and hands murder today. Tri-state Great Depression era gruesome fuckery. Oh yeah, if you're new here, two things. That other voice is Alex. He helps out with the music and other stuff. And it's going to sound like I'm rambling from time to time, but trust me, we'll get there. He's a professional. No, I'm not. I haven't been paid for this yet. Captain Harry R. Miller spent most of his life living with his mother and sister in Cincinnati in a neighborhood called Walnut Hills. Walnut Hills, I'm guessing, is a bit misleading as this entire story takes place during the Great Depression. Very few walnuts in Ohio and not many hills. Which might explain why the good captain chose to stay with his mother for so long. It was probably the only option to keep everybody in the family from starving or being homeless. Regardless, around 1928, Miller purchases a home outside of New Trenton, Indiana, I think, on about 25 acres of land. And today, there's only like 200 people here, so he might have literally been the only person in town then. Default mayor of New Trenton, Indiana, Captain Harry Miller. That's too long of a title. He would also at some point have to add Financial Wizard to his resume, as he made some rather wise investments with the money he saved by living with Ma. Many Americans, during the Great Depression, found a way to save themselves by investing in different stocks and bonds, such as Joseph Kennedy Sr. played the stock market for a little while, did some insider trading and manipulation, other stuff that I didn't read too far into because I don't care, then went on to crank out a shit-ton of low-budget movies in Hollywood for a few years. Other people would invest in the auto industry, blah, 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 and other things, but we're not here to talk about my lack of historical Great Depression-era investment knowledge. We're here to talk about a murder. How does a retired fire captain end up being on the receiving end of a poorly executed murder plot? Well, we have to talk about a gentleman to do that. A gentleman named Heber L. Hicks. This man was, at the time of the story, on parole for murder. Couldn't find any details on that murder, but he did kill somebody else. He was hired as a chauffeur by none other than Flora Miller. If that name sounds familiar, that's because she is Harry's sister. Captain Miller, however, liked to brag about how much money he had. Being the Great Depression and all, he was probably pretty proud of being able to have money and, as such, thought it was great to not be depressed. What did his sister do? Well, the article doesn't say, but it's the Great Depression, so probably nothing. But her role in this ends up becoming just as crazy as the murder part, just that her story really isn't until afterwards. Tell me more about this Heber guy. What's his deal? Okay, so being that Captain Miller is a bit of a braggart about his investments in bonds, the paroled murderer chauffeur began to get ideas about how to acquire said money. Oh shit, okay. What's his plan? How's he gonna get the money? Well, paroled murderers in April 1936 don't rank very high on my list of people who I think could plan a murder and get away with it. I mean, he already didn't get away with it once. But this time he decides, you know what? I might need some help with this, and then he decides to hire another guy to help him out. This is already crazy enough, and it keeps going. (laughs) Car driving paroled murderer hires friend to help with additional murder. He must have overheard Captain Miller bragging one day about how much money he had and began plotting to murder him and then somehow acquire his money through Flora. Which makes no sense. You still don't get the money when he dies, but in any case. He got in touch with another paroled convict, a man by the name of John Pahulski. So now we have two ex-cons. Lovely. What did he offer him? At first, Big John was offered $2,000 to murder the captain, but shrewdly negotiated his cut up to $5,000. Normally, if a given dollar amount sounds reasonable for a murder contract, that's a red flag. That's actually probably a cop in most cases. However, those dollar amounts in 1936 range from between 43000 to 108000 by today's standards, which I still don't think is worth it, but better than five grand, I guess. However, then John says, You know what? I'm a skinny bastard, and I also need some more help. God damn it, again? Yeah, man. Captain Miller is a big son of a bitch. He's around 300 pounds, a retired firefighter, so a 160-pound man like Pahulski couldn't even rock this guy back on his heels. By the way, Big John is no longer Big John. For the remainder of this story, he will be referred to as Little John. Yeah. So Little John realizes he's too lil and hires yet another convict to assist with the murder plot. You've got to be kidding me. How many ex-cons are just walking around Indiana? At least four by my count. The new one's name is William Coleman, so we'll call him Willie Cools. Now with all three men in tow, they go out scouting the area trying to find a dump site and wind up in Carrollton, Kentucky and find a small lake in a deserted field. A what? Isn't that just a pond? I mean it says lake, but yeah, it sounds more like a pond. Wait, deserted field? What makes it deserted? Fields are mostly just wide open empty space anyway, so why the extra adjective? I even Google image search deserted field just to see what they were talking about, and guess what? Go ahead, you you can try this too. I'll give you you extra time, go on, it's okay. Unless you're driving, don't do it if you're driving. Alright, non-drivers. Do you see that? Yeah, that looks exactly like what I thought a field looked like in my head. You know what? I'll take it one step further. Just use your imagination for this part. You've seen a field before, just use that. It's way easier than finding a Google machine, and it's just as accurate. I don't even know why I went on the internet right now. I was right anyway. We will get there, I promise you. But we're a little short on manpower still, so our HR department has reached out Jesus to a temp agency really? and found another man to help with the job. Frank Gore Williams. Pretty sure not that one, as this one is half-brother to Coolman, Which brings us to a grand total of four fuckwits to murder one guy. Because the original fuckwit wants to somehow acquire the captain's not-at-all-liquid estate by proxy through Flora, the captain's sister. This is why crime is so fascinating to me. So we've got Hicks, Gore, Kuhlman, and Pahulski. Jesus, how many fucking people does it take to murder one guy? Dude, I don't know what's happening in these guys' minds either. How between the four of them, four, did they not realize that A, this is a bad plan, or two, how are we gonna get away with it? We're all ex convicts guys, they know us already. This is why crimes like this are funny to me, when you really look at what's happening in these situations, it's just ridiculous how anyone could look at that line of logic and still think, this is a good idea, and then poorly attempt to follow through because they never account for everything and usually get caught. Especially since Hicks, old double H here, can only provide an alibi for Thursday nights for some reason which to me says he's expected to be somewhere on Thursday night, so if he isn't at that place on Thursday and is instead murdering someone, eventually, police are going to go to that place and ask about him, right? So that's not an alibi, right? That seems silly. In any case, the force set out to New Trenton on May 28th to attempt this flimsy murder plot, but first, a little stop in Harrison to down a few pints of liquid courage. Slap a couple of dog soups and slug burgers down the hatch before we get on with this murder. If you understand what those terms mean already, you're awesome. If you don't, go back and listen to the Corpse Wax episode and you'll find out. I think the episode is called Oldies and Goodies, if I remember right. So first attempt doesn't quite go as planned, and now they have to wait until next Thursday before they can try again. Next Thursday rolls around and everybody is excited to go through with the plan. Except for Double H, who for some reason doesn't show up. Like, bro, what are you doing? This is your bad murder plot. We kinda need you to be here for it. Where was more important to be than a murder? Maybe he was at his alibi place to actually concoct an alibi? Or maybe he just got too drunk and passed out on Depression-era hooch before the meetup time. Who knows? But they finally end up deciding to attempt to sell the captain some bootleg hooch on June 11th in the hopes just to be able to find him at home. They arrive on that day and park near the bottom of the driveway. Paholsky, aka Lil John, stays in the car to be the getaway driver, while Heber Hicks, aka Double H, William Coleman, aka Willie Cools, and Frank Gore Williams, aka um, Corndog, all approach the house to conduct the sale. Actually, Double H goes by Jimmy for some reason but I decided to call him by a name that actually makes fucking sense since he does not have a J anywhere in his name. While inside, the three gentlemen present themselves adequately enough to reach the point of sampling whiskey. As Double H pours the captain his swill, Willie Cools sneaks up behind him and bashes his head in with a lead pipe. Captain Miller doesn't go down without a fight though, and he quickly returns to his feet and bolts toward the front door. The three other men give chase while calling out to the getaway driver to help them. Pahulski catches up to them and begins wailing on the captain with the pipe and soon all four men are treating him like the printer in office space. Then they wrap up the body once he loses consciousness and put him in the back of the car. Double H said he'd stay behind to clean while the other three drove off. Now while Double H is cleaning up God only knows what at the captain's house, Lil John, Willie Cools, and Corndog are all en route to dispose of the body. Except for that he isn't dead yet and begins struggling with Little John in the back seat shortly after departing. So Willie Cools turns around from the front seat and shoots him once in the head and once in the torso and that's what finally kills him. Jesus, it took four people and a car ride to kill one person, so now what? Eventually they make it to the burial site they had previously scouted out but quickly run into a problem. See, As soon as they started digging they hit solid rock. Womp womp. Well, damn, I suppose we ought to figure out something else to do with this body real quick, like in a post-haste sort of fashion. Who's got an idea what to do with this stiff? The three men kind of look around at each other for a moment, and then little John chirps up. I'll tell you what we'll do, see? Here's a little trick I learned in prison from just a very short while ago. What we have to do is remove the arms and legs from the body as well as the head, then we can bury the different parts separately to avoid identification. You'd expect most people to be horrified at this suggestion, but these are all ex-convicts, remember? So instead, they said, Well, how about that? This inbred son of a bitch had an idea that might actually work. Well, now, hold on just one second. What do you mean by inbred, you dingy egg? Now, now, don't get your flippers all twisted, button man. You're not fooling anybody with that last name. Why, I ought to fail you for the daylight by saying that. Supposing I tell that flappy dame of yours about the broad you took to the flop house last Thursday night. The rest of that interaction can play out however you want, because it didn't happen. Just flip to page 37, paragraph 2, in order to continue on with that adventure. Meanwhile, the rest of us will be slowly dismembering the captain's extremities and encasing them in concrete, because that's what they did. Afterwards, they drive around rural Kentucky with a chopped up fire captain looking for a dump spot and throw the head and hands into an empty lake while stashing the torso in a culvert not very far away from the lake. Hey, why do they always do that? Do what? Go through all the effort of actually killing someone and dismembering them only to dispose of it so lazily. Wish I could tell you, buddy, but it gives me something to talk about, so you know, maybe I don't want to know the answer anyway. The very next day, June 12th, some farmers are out and about doing stuff in the fields and they come across some tools and bloodstains that the crew left behind. Genius. Two weeks later, three boys are swimming around in a lake near Carrollton, Kentucky sound familiar, when they notice something floating just below the surface. Twas a box. Ooh, what's in the box? The boys turn the box in to the police and upon opening the box, they discover that both the captain's head and hands had been encased in concrete and placed inside the box doesn't take long for authorities to say, Ah, what the fuck is that? (laughs) Doesn't take long for authorities to trace all the parts back to one person and then to link the body back to the three murderers. While they're busy finding those three dipshits, a few of the late captain's friends from New Trenton noticed he'd been absent for a while. When they heard about the body being found in Carrollton, they went there to identify the body. The sheriff then contacts next of kin, Flora, who shows up with double H and then says, No, that's not him. We don't know that guy. Never seen him before in my life. We don't know. Nope, mm Nope, don't know. She's obviously lying. They quickly find out and soon arrest Flora and Hicks at the new Trenton home. They've arrested him at his house. Sounds like the behavior of strangers, right? I don't know this guy, but I have access to his house and his stuff. Anyway, they were arrested on July 2nd and after a 27 hour investigation the two confessed to the murder and soon the hunt for the other three accomplices can begin. Lil John was the first to get caught, he was hiding out in Warren, Ohio. They nabbed him just three weeks before Hicks' trial was to begin. He readily admitted his role in the murder and also said that Hicks was not in Cincinnati and that in fact he was in on the murder too. Four days after the trial, Willie Cools is arrested all the way over in Portland. I don't know how the hell he got over there. His account of the story, however, lined up with the other details we've come to learn so far. Finally, Corndog was the last to get caught. He was over in San Francisco, maybe looking for another Corndog. Corndog is ride or die, though, because he tried to say that Hicks had no knowledge of the murder until the morning after. But the police already know that that's bullshit, so I guess nice try, Corndog. We're moving right along with it today, so now it's December 7th, 1936, trial day, and the jury consists of, I cannot make this shit up, the article says, the jury consists of 11 farmers and one mechanic. No fucking way, dude. I know. I couldn't believe it either. I wasn't even going to do a bit this week, but apparently, our fearless protector and his faithful fixer of our shit has time travel powers as well. you stuck in a Great Depression era capital murder trial? Did you forget to pack extra time dilation crystals? Are you having performance issues or a general distaste for the current lack of support for publicly available time machines? If you answered yes to any of these questions, you need to call Night Mechanic. When he isn't patrolling around the big city helping people with street muggings or changing a tire, Night Mechanic also spends a good chunk of his time traveling to different time periods so that his specific flavor of justice can be tasted by all generations. Whether you find yourself in the 1930s, 40s, 50s, or even as far back as the Civil War, just flash the special night mechanic signal and he will find his way to you to help you fix your shit. Horse and buggy got a busted wheel? Maybe the old well on your property just needs to be maintained somehow. Or it could just be the fence that keeps your prized black Angus certified livestock pinned in just won't stay up. I don't know how one man can be capable of so many different talents across so many different timelines. Don't forget about his many black belts and mechanical degrees, as well as a basic understanding of quantum entanglement. Whatever your need, whenever your need, if you need him, Night Mechanic will be there for you. Note, Night Mechanic is not responsible for any injuries, robberies, maimings, stabbings, incinerations, impalings, stranglings, or kidnappings while under contract with the Night Mechanic. Alright, since this is now the third episode in a row where Night Mechanic has made an appearance, I'm just going to make him the show's mascot now official security partner of my second self and I, night Mechanic. At the trial, the four men do one hell of a job implicating themselves as they all retold the story. Lil' John's story matched what Double H had said, but then Double H's defense team tried to say that his confession was coerced. Then, in a huge dick move, Hicks totally tries to throw Flora under the bus, saying that she wanted him dead and that she'd been stealing from him the whole time. Judge didn't seem to appreciate this statement and followed up with one of his own. He says, You will be taken by the Sheriff of Franklin County to the Indiana State Penitentiary at Michigan City, where he will deliver you into the custody of the warden. You, Heber L. Hicks, will on April 10th, 1937, before sunrise, be put to death by electric current in accordance with the verdict of this jury and in the laws of the state of Indiana. Now get the fuck out of my courtroom. Adjourned! Okay, he didn't say that last part, obviously, but... Willie Cools, Lil' John, and Corn Dog, Coolman, Frank Gore-Williams, and Paholsky were all sentenced to death as well. The three of them would all be executed by electric chair on June 10th, 1937, and is the only time in the state's history that three inmates have been executed on the same day. Neat. Hicks, however, was granted a series of stays thanks to the appeals court, but was also eventually executed by electrocution on May 6, 1938. Now that they're all dead, let's talk about Flora for a second. She ended up inheriting all of her brother's estate, and it made her quite wealthy. As I'm sure you can imagine, in this time period and after what happened, Flora became increasingly reclusive as the years went by. She took up permanent residence in the Alms Hotel in downtown Cincinnati, and then bought a separate 12-room house just to store all the random shit that she had somehow acquired. She stayed in the hotel until about 1954, which she had not left in seven years. This woman hadn't set foot outside of her own apartment, hotel room, in seven years. Now 83, and quite hysterical, police had to break down her door with a battering ram. An auctioneer who was charged with the inventory of all her belongings said it was the, quote, most bizarre collection of stuff I have ever handled in all of my years. Here is a collection of mid-Victorian and late-Victorian personal effects and domestic equipment that has never been equaled by the contents of any home I've ever seen in Cincinnati. Some of this stuff is magnificent, and some of it's just junk. I looked around, but I couldn't find out what any of the actual stuff was that was in there. I really want to know what kind of stuff it was, too. It seems like she would have some really bizarre things in there, but I just couldn't find it. Maybe it's out there. If you know where it is, tell me somehow, but I couldn't get to it. She was removed from the dwelling and condemned to a sanitarium where she lived until 1962. This lady made it all the way to 91 years old after living through not only the Great Depression but also an insane murder plot that got her brother killed, made her rich, and eventually sent her away to die in obscurity in my favorite Metallica song. Her estate was valued at around 200000 when she died, which by today's standards is a little bit over a million dollars. So there you have it, folks. Quick little crazy story to break up the monotony of whatever's happening for you today. I've decided to move any updates toward this section of the show right here that we're in right now. Hello. Hi. Here we are. I'm going to be putting out a series of shorter episodes just like this one with a few anthologies peppered in here and there when I have time. I'll probably also still do some long form episodes too, but those fucking take a long goddamn time to put together. So maybe I'll make those special things for like actual serial killers because, you know, it's honestly less satisfying to condense serial killers into short format thing for me anyway. But I hope you liked that episode. If not, um, I don't know what to tell you. Thank you for trying it out. At least I didn't waste too much of your time. Maybe this just doesn't work for you. That's cool. It works for me, though. So thanks for giving it a shot. As for the rest of you, that's all the time I have for today. I'm Beat. I'll see you guys in a little while. My schedule's kind of weird right now, so I'll be uploading stuff at random intervals for a while just until life outside the pod universe calms down. Until then, have a good night, everybody. Stay kind. Bye.